This week on The Take, we're marking one year since a pair of devastating earthquakes hit Turkey and Syria with a new digital interactive. Listen and watch stories of survival, recovery, and coping with the grief at aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Again, that's aj.audio forward slash earthquakes. Al Jazeera Podcasts. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI. And I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. Already under relentless Israeli bombardment for months, Palestinians in northern Gaza are also going hungry. The UN Food Agency has halted aid deliveries, saying civil order has collapsed. So, how can Israel be stopped from using starvation as a weapon of war? I'm Mohammed Jamjoum, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. So what's the significance of the WFP's decision? And it's a good question for our guest today. Joining us from Occupied East Jerusalem is Shana Lowe, communications advisor for the Norwegian Refugee Council in Palestine. In Ramallah, in the Occupied West Bank, is Nebal Farsakh, spokesperson for the Palestinian Red Crescent Society, which has delivered essential services to Palestinians since 1969. And from London, we're joined by Sarah Pantoliano, the chief executive of ODI, a respected humanitarian policy think tank. A warm welcome to you all, and thanks so much for joining us today on Inside Story. Nabal, let me start with you today. More than a million people used to live in the north of the Gaza Strip. Now, the area is mostly destroyed. For those who chose to stay or for those who chose to return, just how difficult has life become for them? How desperate is the situation and how dire is the suffering? It is extremely dire. We're talking about almost 700,000 Palestinians who are now in Gaza City and the north. Those people are completely denied access to humanitarian aid. We're talking about um, WFP ceasing, seizing operation and distributing aid in Gaza City. But we all know that since the beginning of the war uh, in Gaza, Israel has uh, imposed besiege on Gaza City and the north. And this area is nearly completely cut off humanitarian aid. That's why the situation there is catastrophic. People are literally starving. Most people, they struggle uh, even to have one meal. Most essential supplies um, are not available uh, at the market. And even uh, items which are available are extremely high. We're talking about 10, 20 times higher prices than normal. Just having a one egg is almost $2. I have here closely from our colleagues in Jabalia, north of Gaza, and they have been telling me how they struggle every day in order to find food for their families. Shayna, uh, you heard Nabal there talk about how the situation is catastrophic. Now, the WFP previously warned of famine-like conditions affecting 2.3 million people in Gaza. They said that its teams witnessed unprecedented levels of desperation in the north just recently. Now, how bad, from what you're hearing, is the situation, and how fearful 
are you and your teams of how much worse it could get? You know, we're hearing similar reports about the cost of food just simply being astronomical, if it even can be found. We have some colleagues who also remain in northern Gaza and Gaza City, uh, and they have run out of flour, they've run out of corn, they're running out of animal fodder, they don't have any cooking oil. Really, they are struggling to survive. We've uh, seen that the WFP reported that uh, around 16% of children under the age of two are suffering from acute malnutrition in northern Gaza. This is only going to, to rise as, as aid convoys cannot access Gaza because it simply isn't safe. These are unbelievable conditions for humanitarians to be trying to work in. And imagine if it's this difficult for humanitarians, how difficult it is also for the civilian population that's struggling to survive. Yeah, and Shana, you were talking there about logistics, and I wanted to follow up with you about that because there are so many aid agencies who have complained about the cumbersome Israeli procedures that slow these aid trucks from getting into Gaza, that slow the flow of aid from getting into Gaza. I want to ask you about specifically how difficult it is getting the aid in, not just that, but also once the aid is actually in, and it's not a huge amount that's getting in, but once it actually is in, how difficult it is for those aid agencies to actually pick up the aid and then distribute the aid? Well, first of all, Israel has implemented these extremely cumbersome screening processes, which delay aid. It's been difficult to track aid when it's coming in, be able to anticipate it. We've also seen recently that Israel has been targeting uh, aid convoys, uh, or the police officers, rather, who are accompanying aid convoys, which has led to the police no longer being willing to provide that service, meaning that, that convoys are being uh, mobbed by, by desperate Palestinians struggling to get anything. So uh, when, when trucks are, are managing to get into Gaza, having them travel from Rafah all the way in the south up to northern Gaza, it's very, very difficult for, for convoys to be able to make that journey and arrive to their destination with the aid that, with the, the, the complete package of, of aid, because so much of it is being uh, looted along the way or, or being forced to be distributed to people who are in desperate need and struggling themselves. We desperately need, in addition to the massive scaling up of aid, the reduction of these cumbersome screening processes, we need additional access points, including from the north, from Erez, from the Kearney crossing. We need additional ways to be getting aid in so that it reaches people uh, more efficiently and can reach those throughout all of Gaza, all of whom are in desperate need, but particularly those in northern Gaza. Sarah, so the World Food Program is now saying that it's halting food deliveries to northern Gaza because conditions are too dangerous. Obviously, this is of huge significance when it comes to the impact it will have on people in northern Gaza getting that hugely needed aid. I mean, the WFP is essentially the backbone for food delivery in Gaza. So if they are pausing their distribution, what does this mean going forward? And can we expect to see other aid agencies essentially taking the same decision in the near term. Yeah, that is a very real, you know, danger that all humanitarian supplies to Northern Gaza will stop. And this is in the context of a situation that, as my colleagues were just uh, describing, is, is desperate. You know, we are seeing, you know, suffering that is unspeakable uh, throughout Gaza, but particularly in the North, where people have really been left without, you know, um, support. Um, I have very dear 
friends and colleagues who are you know, responding in these emergencies, people that have worked in some of the worst crises around the world from Sudan to Yemen. And they're telling me that what they're seeing now, what they are witnessing is something they've never witnessed in their very long careers as humanitarian um, actors on, in, in, around the world. Just to add a few figures to what my colleagues have already said, WFP talks about you know, potential famine, but we know that half a million Gazans are already in famine-like situation. Um, and that you know, means that a lot of kids are starving because a lot of the population of Gaza is made of young people, is made of children. We are seeing you know, blockages of convoys repeatedly. I mean, the UN said that um, from the 1st of January to the mid of February, 51% of plant aid deliveries to northern Gaza were denied access by Israeli authorities. And you know, in the month of January, only 10 of the 61 you know, humanitarian aid missions that they had asked for were allowed by Israel north of Wadi Gaza. And I think that is really important to you know, stress because Israel as a warring party has an obligation to facilitate humanitarian assistance, you know, to allow humanitarian assistance to Gaza. Actually, they have an obligation as an occupying power to supply civilians in Gaza with food. Um, and they are you know, failing this obligation to ensure critical continuity of essential services and, and you know, sort of protect civilians. So actually, when they, they can't um, sort of uphold this obligation, they must, they absolutely must, you know, according to international humanitarian law, allow unimpeded flow of humanitarian goods. Uh, and what we're seeing instead is just a trickling of you know, the odd track here and there for 2.3 million people. Nibal, uh, Sarah was talking there about the risk of famine that is now being detected in Gaza, also talking about the responsibility that an occupying force has when it comes to the delivery of aid. Now, I want to ask you about the fact that the Palestinian Red Crescent has been warning that a number of people have died as a result of Israel's deliberate starvation and famine in Gaza. So I want to ask you, is what we are seeing right now war by starvation, and are Israel's actions in Gaza causing a famine? Almost a quarter of population in Gaza are literally starving, and the rest of the population are, uh, all of them, uh, suffer from uh, insecure, uh, insecure uh, access to food. Food insecurity is something that every single Palestinian in Gaza now uh, suffer from. Old people are suffer to have food, water, and even medicine. And um, I also stress out the importance of uh, Israel as an occupying power, have a responsibility to fulfill the needs of civilians in Gaza. Although, and despite this, uh, Israel is using the humanitarian aid as a weapon against Palestinians, as a, a collective punishment to let the entire population starve. And we have been seeing uh, people are literally starving. Uh, I'll tell you uh, regarding uh, our experience and our medical post, uh, uh, which we had established in Jabalia, north of Gaza. According to our volunteers there, they are telling us uh, the medical post is receiving many cases for children who suffer from severe uh, malnutrition. And those uh, children um, are literally uh, starving because they don't have access to food. Many of them as well uh, start getting infectious diseases, hepatitis A. According to the figures, uh, at least 700,000 Palestinians in Gaza Strip uh, caught 
uh, and contagious diseases such as respiratory diseases, skin diseases, and other diseases. The situation is extremely dangerous, and Palestinians, if they don't lose their lives, directly because of the bombardments, they will because of starvation and infectious diseases. The level of starvation, particularly in Gaza City and the North, has reached a, a very dangerous stage. Sarah, I want to come back to you about a point you were making about the obligation under international humanitarian law when it comes to occupying forces, when it comes to the delivery of aid. You know, in January, the International Court of Justice ordered Israel to take immediate and effective measures to enable the provision of humanitarian assistance in Gaza. But the Palestinians in the north, in Gaza, say nothing has changed, that things have only gotten worse. Aid agencies say the same. The framework for international humanitarian law, it's being challenged in ways now that it has not been challenged before. Isn't that correct? It is sadly really correct and, and very dangerous because, you know, what we have seen over the past uh, few months since the attack by Hamas on the 7th of, of October um, is a flouting of international humanitarian law at a level unseen before. I mean, obviously, Hamas' attack was unconscionable, but, you know, reciprocal crimes against humanity cannot be accepted as a proxy. You know, the laws of war exist to preserve humanity in the midst of fighting. You know, they're there really to give us a, a moral compass to, to, to limit the suffering of civilians. And, and, you know, the parties are required to exercise restraint and abide by, you know, the Geneva Conventions. And just, you know, to explain what this means, um, it is that the parties need to exercise a distinction between civilians and military targets. They need to use due precaution um, to prevent harm to civilians. They need to make sure that the damage to civilians is proportionate compared to any you know, anticipated military advantage gained. I would argue that Israel is failing all of these tests. And you know, it's failed them so far, it's continuing to fail them. Um, as people say in the ICJ interim ruling hasn't really you know, changed anything. Now, even if Israel is acting in self-defense, you know, even if Hamas, you know, continues to hold hostages and commit criminal actions, these cannot be used to justify what is really the collective punishment of 2.3 million Palestinians in Gaza, you know, the majority of whom are children, as I've already said. You know, it can be justified, it can be used to justify a forcible transfer of civilian population, bombardment of civilian localities, all, you know, the failure of, of, of providing humanitarian relief, all things that are, mm. you know, a violation of international humanitarian laws. And, and I would also add that the failure um, of other states, of third-party states, to prevent these violations is basically complicity. You know, we see in Western democracy, they are violating themselves, some mm. of the most fundamental commitments to international humanitarian law and human rights law. Shana, I saw you reacting to a lot of what Sarah was saying there, and it looked to me like you wanted to jump in, so I'm going to let you go ahead. No, I mean, Sarah's absolutely right that, that we're seeing starvation being used as a weapon of war and that Israel has completely, um, completely uh, ignored, uh, evaded, denied its responsibility towards the occupied population. It was Israel, remember, who, who uh, within the first day or two of this war declared that they would cut off all electricity, water, uh, and fuel supplies. 
And and it's and we saw that the the International Court of Justice reaffirmed Israel's role and responsibility as the occupying power to provide for the basic necessities of, of the of the protected population. In this case, the Palestinians in Gaza. I think what we're concerned about, as we see um, starvation levels grow, particularly in northern Gaza, is that this is just another uh, coercive measure that Israel is taking to to depopulate northern Gaza to forcibly transfer in violation of international humanitarian law the the population there and and force them really out uh, to to south of Wadi Gaza to the middle area to Hanunis to Rafa or perhaps even out to to Egypt as we've seen uh, as, as as this looming ground offensive uh, or ground operation in in Rafa um, continues to be to be uh, previewed and so it's it's essential that we continue to, first and foremost, demand a ceasefire, which will, of course, allow for, for conditions that are better for and, and appropriate for humanitarians to be responding. But we also need the international community to put pressure on Israel to fulfill these obligations under international law. And if they are not willing to provide the basic needs uh, for survival of the protected population, they at the very least need to facilitate uh, third parties, humanitarian agencies, the UN in, in, in fulfilling those obligations on their behalf. Nibal, um, I know we touched on this a little bit earlier in the show, but we need to remember that the World Food Program had only just resumed aid delivery to northern Gaza after a three-week suspension that had taken place. Now they're stopping yet again. Um, they say it's just simply too dangerous. This really underscores how dangerous things are for civilians in the north, too, right? Exactly. Civilians, uh, since the beginning of the war, have been denied access to humanitarian uh, aid. I um, absolutely understand how uh, humanitarian agencies struggle to get the aid uh, into Gaza, especially uh, after uh, many attempts uh, were faced by refusal from Israeli authorities to allow the entry of a humanitarian aid. And even the number of humanitarian aid trucks that are allowed to go uh, into Gaza City and the north, we're talking about just a few number of aid trucks. That's why we have seen people very desperate trying to jump into the trucks and take anything they can uh, t uh, take because people uh, only want to survive. The, the level and the stage of dangerous of how people are literally starving in Gaza City and the North, it can't be imagined. We have said that repeatedly. People started even to grant uh, animals uh, beans in order to have a flour uh, to make a bread. The situation there uh, is dire, and we also continue to confirm uh, that the situation, generally speaking, regarding the humanitarian aid, Israel is the one who is obstructing the entry of a humanitarian aid into Gaza Strip. Before uh, the war on Gaza, Gaza was receiving around 500 aid trucks daily. Today, even when both crossings, uh, Rafah and Karm Abu Salem, are open a maximum of 100 
78 trucks are getting in. That means we are far away from the number of eight trucks that should be allowed to be in so we can fulfill the needs of people. The eight trucks that are allowing to get in doesn't even scratch the surface. We're talking about a fifth month of war in Gaza. There is many needs that is related to the emergency situation we are in, which means we need to have relief items in order to be provided for almost 90% of the population who became IDPs. This wasn't a need before the war. This is something mm. that is in you and it's related to the emergency situation. And instead of increasing the aid truck, we're mm. getting less aid trucks. At least if we take this into consideration, in addition to the increasing needs of hospitals since they are dealing with more mm. injuries and they need more supplies, more medicines, we need to have double or triple trucks in order to fill, fill the needs of people. On and top Sarah, of that, sorry we to need interrupt. to have access to all areas in Gaza City and not just to leave Gaza City and the North completely denied access of humanitarian aid. And Sarah, also, just to contextualize a bit more, you're talking about the fact that before October 7th, there were around 500 trucks of aid per day that would enter Gaza. And even then, most of the population was dependent upon humanitarian assistance. So the fact that aid has massively decreased since then only showcases how much worse the situation is getting, right? Just a few weeks ago is the suspension of funding to UNRWA, which was, you know, the lifeline uh, for so many Palestinians in uh, in Gaza and uh, practically has no you know no money to continue to support uh, Palestinians. So we can just you know imagine how this has um, aggravated a situation that was already really you know deeply um, desperate for for so many people on the ground. Um, Shana, if I could ask you, um, the fact of the matter is, we're talking about how, as you said, more international pressure needs to be applied in order to get more aid into Gaza. But let me ask you this. Even if there were more crossings that were opened, does that immediately make the situation better or are there still a lot of obstacles to overcome? Well, of course, the situation it needs more than just the opening of crossings. We need an, and the scaling up of aid. Uh, the amount of devastation and destruction throughout all of Gaza is going to take years to, to rebuild, let alone, of course, the, the psychological trauma that will, I'm sure, last for generations after all that the people of Gaza have experienced over the last four and a half months. Uh, but, but it is a first step in terms of allowing for the entry of more goods. The other thing on top of, of just having more entry points that would make it easier to access uh, all um, more areas of Gaza is that we need um, restrictions to be lifted in terms of what can enter Gaza. There have been reports of, of relief items um, being denied entry, including things as simple as tent poles or um, toolkits to help uh, that are included in shelter kits to help seal off um, homes. So we need those restrictions to be lifted as well to allow not only for a greater influx of goods, but a greater variety of goods that are entering that can help and support the relief effort. That also includes machinery. One of the major issues right now that's also 
hampering the, the delivery of aid is the lack of even things as simple as forklifts to be able mm. to offload aid into warehouses and be able to, to um, take inventory mm. and figure out how to distribute it. Uh, things like fuel to be able to, to get to, to different areas of Gaza and be able to, to distribute aid. Mm. Um, restoration of telecommunications. All of these things Shana, are needed for there to I'm, be a robust I'm sorry to interrupt. We just don't have a whole lot of time left. Uh, Nibal, I want to ask you one last question. We have just about two minutes left. From your perspective right now, as dire as the situation is, what needs to happen right away in order for the situation to improve? We continue to call on a ceasefire. We can't, uh, as a humanitarian agencies, operate under such horrific conditions. This war needs to be end, and we uh, need protection for civilians, since we're talking about 70% of the victims are children and women. We don't want people just to die, to die with full stomach. First, we need them to be protected. And second, we need uh, a safe, unembedded humanitarian aid access into Gaza through mm. all borders and the new points. And we need also to be able to distribute aid in all areas in Gaza and not sell and to break the siege that is imposed since the beginning of the war on Gaza, mm. on the area of Gaza City and the North. Gaza City and the North 700,000 people there are civilians, and they do have a right to have access to food and water. And we need this access to be guaranteed. We need also a safe access for us as a humanitarians not to be targeted while we are implementing our life-saving missions, trying to alleviate the suffering of people in Gaza. All right. Well, we have run out of time, so we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thanks so much to all of our guests, Shayna Lowe, Nabal Farsakh, and Sarah Pantuliano. This episode was produced by Mohamed Al-Aishi, Dmitry Medvedenko, Veronica Pedrosa, and Gemma Harris. Studio sound was by Mohamed Osman. The program was edited by Mohamed Subhi, Zaina Badr, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Thursday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take, faith leaders in the U.S. have embarked on a state-to-state -state pilgrimage for peace, calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Will it work? That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.